0: Hello, Internet. My name is Walter C.A.D. Svedchuk, and welcome to the Final Cut podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, Before we begin, my producer, Nick, uh, has given me a piece of paper from our lawyers uh, that I am now required to read uh, before we actually get into the episode. Uh, And I quote, The following podcast you're about to listen to is between two friends that are not film critics. They don't know what they're talking about, so please don't take anything they say as too seriously or something you should bring up to friends and relatives at the holiday table. Uh, They really don't know what they are talking about, and the views that are expressed in this episode are their own individual views and do not reflect the views of Rough Drafts Podcast Network, Incorporated. That being said, as always, I would like to introduce my co-host, good friend and movie critic... Chase Wassenar. Chase, how are you doing today?
1: <laughs> I, I'm doing well. I, I feel like I should have been looped in at some point about both the fact that we have a new editor and also that statement, which I'm I'm not co-signing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a on a limb here. I'm gonna I'm gonna risk my own personal integrity and say that anyone can be a film critic if you believe hard enough. And I think we've reviewed enough films over the last couple of years, that we are much more of a uh, movie critic than the average person out there. Though, so, of course, I'm also part of a weekly series of film watching called Pretentious Movie Night in my apartment, so perhaps I just want to feel like that, that effort paid off in some actual knowledge along the way. Um, but, you know, I, congrats on, on finding an editor, man. I think that's, you know, by and large, a pretty cool thing for us to have done. Um, Listen, I you I do know about this guy? I, you know, uh it, it's
0: Nick. It's the same guy who used to do the esports stuff with us. The same yeah. guy. Same exact yeah. guy. Um, you know, just started a couple of days ago. Uh, hasn't had to edit anything, hasn't had to do anything, but he's the one that's controlling the keys. Now, I don't have to do anything. That's what happens when you become a big star, right? Okay. That's, because that, that's what I am, right? I'm yeah. a star. I'm sure. I'm a content creator star. Uh, I'll be on TikTok soon. Uh, I, I think Vine's still a thing, so I'll have a Vine. I'll have a Vimeo channel. Like, it's, listen, baby, multi-streaming, now allowed by Twitch, it's taking off here and I need an executive assistant. Sorry, executive producer uh to assist me with my with my day-to-day work. They um, have
1: called you the Mr. Beast of podcasting for a while now. So fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck
0: you. Fuck you. Fuck you. How fucking dare you? <laughs> that is atrocious. Almost as atrocious as your fantasy football team, because ladies oh, and wow. gentlemen, I did get my win back uh, last, last week as we were recording. So that, that was uh, week, what, nine, week eight? I, I don't even know anymore. My, t- my football team is bad. So uh, well, Chase.
1: All, all it took was me traveling and not remembering <laughs> to start at a quarterback that was actually playing that week and also to not switch out your defense, which really let me down in favor of a Browns defense that I knew was going to be good. And had I done both of those things, I would have won the week. Um, but you know, uh, it turns out you have to log in once, which really isn't asking a lot of me, right? This is this is my fault. I have no one to blame but myself. But I just as as you sit up there at seven and two, and you think about you know your where where you stand and, and what the the playoffs have in store for you. I want you to know, you shouldn't feel great about that win. Uh, that's 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 a a win that that gets you in there but it's not going to keep you there when the playoffs roll around.
0: You know, Chase, it doesn't matter because a, a win is a win. And uh, I will say across the three leagues I'm in, uh, I am uh, I am seven and two in two of them, including the money league with our former co-workers from Las Vegas. Uh, and then I'm in a work league that I'm in sixth place at five and four, but we don't want to, We don't need to talk about that league. Yeah,
1: can, can we just, can we talk real, just last, last thing? You have somehow only had 932 points scored against you. The next closest person in our league has 1,030. So you have, you have played everyone's worst week this entire season. It's honestly very impressive. I, I have to tip, tip my cap to you
0: what what's incredible is somehow that has been both leagues that i am that i am leading right the the money league with the vegas friends it's the same exact thing i am seven and two and people have only scored 931 points against me so i'm just really fucking lucky this year <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to tell you if well, it makes you feel better i i did lose against uh like i said former coworker isaac gonzalez um, who has only played fantasy football for two years and last year seriously asked us if he could draft Brett Favre. So,
1: well, my favorite good. team lost to Josh Dobbs last week, so I'm not feeling good about anything <laughs> football-related, which is why I'm glad this is not a football podcast. Because that is,
0: that is true. This is not a football podcast, and the sooner the football season ends, I think the better for my mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with all that being said, you are correct. This is not a football podcast. We are not going to talk about why we should fire Ken Dorsey, We are instead, as I said at the end of the last episode of Final Cut, going to talk about Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Chase, as we normally start these episodes after the preamble and legal disclosures, (laughs) what were your initial expectations or thoughts going into this film? Because I feel like we've known it was going to happen for like 18 months.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was one of those films where we immediately saw a trailer in theaters before one of the other films that we talked about on the show. Uh, And we're like, yeah, so we're watching that. For sure we're watching that. Um, Because it's the most interesting premise of a film that I've seen possibly all year, right? From a raw, what are we talking about here perspective. Uh, You know, being able to delve into the, you know, Essentially, genocide of the Osage tribe, and the way in which you know these this Oklahoma county got away with the murder of dozens of members of that tribe uh, in a kind of a power grab to exploit the natural riches that their land happened to have. Um, it's incredibly captivating, right? I, I think you and I, um, you know, from a personal politics perspective, we're always going to be team indigenous population in a situation like this but also just you know this is one of those bits of american history that most people shy away from right it's deeply uncomfortable to remember that a lot of the gains that we have and and have gotten as a a country often came at the expense of what were at one point sovereign people who were just trying to live their life the best they could you know they didn't ask for capitalism to be thrust upon them, for instance. They didn't ask for oil to bring in all of this money that then led to all of these problems that come with having too much money in a community that's not used to protecting it. Um, and so it was immediately a fascinating topic. And, of course, Martin Scorsese is a very fascinating director. I, I feel almost silly like going through a list of some of his films that he's made over the course of his career. Um I recently saw Taxi Driver, so I finally got to see some early Scorsese. Um Wolf of Wall Street of course is uh has become a modern classic. Um Gangs of New York is fantastic. Age of Innocence is really interesting. Um but you know, he's a guy that is always had an interest in capturing violence, right? And and what drives people to violence, and, and what are the what are the parts of the human condition that bring out the worst of us in that regard? Um, and this is a film that very much uh, attempts to do that, uh, and I I think uh, you know does so um, surprisingly. I don't want to say surprisingly well because that implies that like oh man, Scorsese making a good film, how crazy. Uh, But more that given that it was a three and a half hour long endeavor, the fact that I remained as engaged as I did from start to finish really speaks to how well he was able to capture the raw emotion of a thing that um, we really should be talking a lot more about as a society.
0: You know, I'm going to go back to the very beginning when you said it's one of, you know, those things where we first saw a trailer. We're like, yeah, we're going to go see that. Uh, We also
1: said that about Moonfall. I didn't that say there. that about Moonfall. You said that about there. Moonfall. I just want to watch Moonfall.
0: Moonfall. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, but that being said, yeah, it, it is... It definitely had this sort of, uh, of sheen to it of like, what the fuck is this? Right? What is this actually going to be? What is the story they are telling here? Uh, and as, as I do with quite a few of our movies, I try not to do any research, investigation, look into it, like, unless it's a sequel... I probably don't know much about what's going on around it. So then afterwards, learning that it was actually, um, actually a, a nonfiction book, um, first, uh, that came out in, uh, I believe it was 2016, if I remember correctly, uh, 2016, 2017, um, that there is, that this is a true story for the most part, you know, that this actually happened, um, I think it's really a failure of the United States educational system that we constantly find out about these events that have happened in history that are not taught in class, but seem to be very, very important. Um, Never really found out about like the Tulsa, you know, race riot stuff until like I was an adult. I don't know. Seems like something important. Maybe you should learn about your own country's history or something like that. Um, So I was just, very intrigued, and obviously it's Scorsese, it's DiCaprio, it's De Niro. Like, how the fuck can you go wrong? I'm sort of uh, disappointed Chase didn't really mention The Departed uh, in his list of <laughs> Scorsese films, which I think is probably my favorite, but then again, I didn't see Goodfellas until like last year, so I don't know. Maybe I just don't watch enough movies. Um, that being said, let's, let's get the length out of the way. You brought it up. Do you think this film needed to be three and a half hours
1: no but nothing needs to be three and a half hours well and and to to refine my point here it is very interesting to me that scorsese's basically said yeah i have no interest in a miniseries right Uh, because this could have been blown up into a miniseries you could have kept you know everything that we had intact um, and you know, maybe broken up a couple things in some different places, um, given a little bit more time to flesh out a couple dynamics and really let the audience sit with them. Like you could have done a six-episode miniseries, um, and it would have been quite good, right? Um, but he's not interested in telling stories that way. Uh, there's a reason that uh, he got very mad, and, and like the the like crew that worked on that film got very upset, and, and went after any. Um, theater that tried to throw in an intermission in there because he didn't he didn't want an intermission in there. He didn't tell the story with an intermission in there. He he intrinsically does not believe that the that the story that he told should have a break in it. Um, and, you know, that's that's a, a, a reasonable artistic choice, right? He he wants people to be immersed in it. He doesn't want people to start a story and then not see it through to the end because there are certain messages he really wants to make sure come home. Um, But it does mean that, like, you know, you're going to have some situations where you ask yourself, like, did we need to see uh, Ernest, uh, you know, say he's going to speak at the trial and then flip-flop and then flop back to where he initially was? I don't know. Um, Are there some scenes maybe that could have been... Trimmed a little bit or condensed, possibly, um, but the the thing that makes it work is that it is an incredibly engaging story, right? And the and the performances across the board really draw you in. I, I went in very concerned, like, oh, am I going to be able to get through this entire film? You know, like, you know, you have to plan out your kind of bathroom break, so to speak. Uh, with a film like that, uh, which thankfully I did not have to do. Um, But it was certainly one of those where, you know, I was cognizant of the time, but it was not an overwhelming thought, right? Uh, Whereas when I was watching Dune Part One with you, I thought about, man, how much time is left in this film quite often. That was a recurring thought when watching that particular film. And You know, it came up a couple times in Killers of the Flower Moon, but really just in terms of like, okay, pacing-wise, where in the story are we? Feels like it's been a couple hours, so we've got room for like one more twist. Let's see where things are taking us. So I don't think it needed to be three and a half hours, but I also do not think that its runtime should be something that condemns it or keeps you from watching it if you, listener at home, are interested in the film and, you know, are, are worried that the runtime is something that you won't be able to uh, to get through. Because I I found that to be a lot easier than I feared. Just because of how well executed the whole thing is. And how largely well paced the whole thing is. I will
0: definitely agree with with engaging. Uh, I will definitely agree with well paced. Um, I will say one of the reasons why I have not watched The Irishman up until, you know, I I still haven't watched it, but have kind of just like, I let it happen. It was like, oh yeah, I'll watch that. And it sort of passed me by was because of the three and a half hour runtime. Uh, and I was like, man, the thought of just sitting for three and a half hours and watching one movie. And then we watched Jawan, which was a very long experience, a very long film, but it did have an intermission. I was like, okay, I can kind of sit there for that long. And I respected Scorsese enough To go into this movie and say, I am not planning on taking any bathroom breaks. I had no snacks. I had no beverage. I had nothing. I said, I am going to sit here for the entire three and a half hours that you are saying I need to be engaged. Because you have been so forward about it and about why you didn't want to do it as an extended series, why you didn't want to cut there and there, why you truly felt that the three and a half hours that I was going to be sitting in there were necessary to the story that you were telling. Um, I appreciate the little blurb at the beginning of him where it's become very common since COVID ended that directors or actors kind of give a little two, three minute intro to the film, thanking you for coming to the theater, thanking you for watching the film the way it was supposed to be intended. Uh, You know, Scorsese is very deferential uh, to the, the Osage tribe and... You know, there's a lot of these kind of shots of the Osage tribe, uh, you know, on set and him talking to them and, and, you know, just kind of like behind the scenes stuff that back in the day when we had DVDs, you would get as DVD extras, uh, for you young kids at home that are listening, a DVD is sort of like a CD, but you play it on your TV. Oh, you don't know what a CD is? Okay, it's sort of like, uh, 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 it's sort of like a CD. No, nope, that doesn't work. Anyways, it's how old people used to watch movies after video cassettes. If you don't know what a video cassette is, ask your grandmother. That being said, um. I agree with you of the, like, there still were some times where I'm like, okay, I'm going to look at my phone, not because I'm bored, not because I need a distraction, not because, you know, I saw it flash and I got to check a text message. It purely was, okay, how long have I really been here? Like, how much more of this film is there? So I have some sort of, as you said, how many more twists are coming? Is it one? Is it two? Is there 10? Have I only been watching this film for 20 minutes? Uh, And to even utter the word Dune in a description about this film feels offensive because Dune was boring as shit. And this truly felt like every scene mattered. Every scene was saying something or was alluding to something further down or was reflecting on something that had happened previously. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the narrative, with the story that they are telling the this story of the, the Osage tribe and how the, the the you know white people right how how Americans uh, are are coming and trying to exploit them out of their their windfall right their luck essentially. They were, as they discussed, they were, they were trekked across the United States. We're going back to the Trail of Tears, essentially, in the discussion of how this tribe has been transplanted and how native tribes have been transplanted in general to these reservations. And they got fucking lucky that their reservation happened to have oil, which all of a sudden was going gonna to become one of the most important commodities on the planet in the 1900s and going into the 2000s. Even nowadays, we still rely on this fucking black gold. Yeah. And the story they are telling, while it is about the tribe in general, is mainly focused on uh, on Lily Gladstone's character of Molly Burkhart, her... uh. Husband, Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And Robert De Niro's William Hale. uh, King William Hale, I'm sorry. Who is Ernest's uncle. And sort of this web that is being weaved between the three as,
1: you know, Hale and Burkhart are trying to steal Molly's money. That's kind of what it comes down to. Oh yeah, it's totally what it comes down to. And it's, it's very... Again, we, we talk about the uncomfortable parts of history, right? But this is a, a mindset that I, I think, I really appreciate that this film goes into because, uh, you know, there's a, a human instinct that I think a lot of people will fall into where they're like, oh, you know, uh, prejudice in the world is all built on just a lack of understanding your fellow human being, right? You, you do not have, you know, people who are unable to uh, experience what life is like in someone else's shoes are unable to empathize with it and thus, you know, make decisions and make choices uh, that they would not make if only they just knew better, if only they met someone that they loved or cared about from that background that would help them see the light, right? That would bring them to a better, healthier place. And Ernest's character is a complete refutation of that idea, right? Because he does love his wife, but he loves money more. And he loves his family and the power of whiteness more. Ultimately, no matter what experience he has with his wife and how much he might respect her as an individual, he never respects her culture. We see that in how much he demeans her whenever it comes to her resistance to taking insulin. Insulin that is not helping her specifically because he's messing with it, right? Or because it is being messed with by, you know, white doctors who have their own agenda on things, right? Uh, There is a constant level of, of gaslighting that is always there, and he's more than willing to engage in slowing her down if it means that he gets to move forward with the plans that he makes with his uncle. His loyalty never shifts despite being part of Osage rituals of, of, you know, having, you know, multiple family members and seeing the grief that comes from their death, right? He is going to the funerals of people. He is directly responsible for their deaths. And he is hearing his wife scream in pain, just absolutely agonizing over the loss of a family that means so much to her as part of this larger generational loss that is happening from an institutional effort to wipe out a culture that means the world to her. And it doesn't change his actions in the slightest. Even at the bitter end, after he has been forced by the court system to face everything he has done, he still cannot bring himself to be fully honest with her about the depth of his depravity and the suffering that he caused. And I think that it's really important that a movie like this is able to capture that element, to capture this idea that there, you know, the people can be complicated, certainly, that they can have multiple competing allegiances, but that, you know, this desire for power and this desire for money and material wealth will put a lot of other things to the side. It doesn't negate those things, but it does mean that loyalty does not fully shift just because you gain the opportunity to understand that which is disadvantageous for you to understand because you sure would like to keep getting that money. Um, so it's really fascinating the the angle that they pick by focusing on Ernest and, and his role in all of this. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad that he did that.
0: And, and there is an honesty to Ernest's character, right? You know, he says, uh, you know, when uh, King Hale, uh, I will refer him to, uh, we'll try to remember to refer to him as King Hale because this is very important, right? Right from the beginning, Hale, like, tells Ernest, oh, you know, you used to call me King when you were a kid, right? Ernest has just come back from World War One, I, I believe, if, if the time period. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's just come back from World War One." And like, sure, he's like, oh, I was a cook. Like, he still came back from World War One, which is, you know, probably one of the most gruesome wars ever actually experienced by humanity, if we're going to really get into the depths of like trench warfare and all that jazz, right? And the first thing Robert De Niro's King of Hell does is like, remember you used to call me king when you were a kid? And Ernest is, Ernest is like, wait, I did? Like, I don't remember that. And he's like, yeah, you did. And then there's this back and forth and Hale is like, oh, do you, you know, you love money? And Ernest's like, oh, I love money. I love Mm -hmm. money. I love money so much. You love women? I love women. And then he goes through, he's like talking about all these women. And at that point, King Hale is like, well, I got, I fucking have this sucker, right? Mm -hmm. I've got my Lenny, baby. Like I've got my golden goose. That's going to, he's my fall guy, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that Ernest actually isn't that dumb. He makes some mistakes, right? Because he doesn't see the whole vision of everything that King Hale is trying to do. But he's not a dumb guy, right? Hale is not coming up to him and saying, Now, Ernest, I want you to go and marry Molly Burkhart, And then... Right? He doesn't really have to do that. He's like, oh, you know, go be a driver. I'll get you a job. And, oh, you've been driving that girl around quite often. Right? Like, he plants the seeds. And Ernest is smart enough to, like, pick up on them without being hit over the head and saying, you dumbass, this is actually what I'm trying to say. Which gives him some, this complicity, right? Up in, as you stated, up until the last moment, he is willing to live the lie and to continue to lie to his wife, about the full extent and the full consequences of his actions throughout the entire course of the film. Actions that really are not like punished or dealt with until it gets up to a federal level, right? Because that's one of the things, like you're out in the middle of Oklahoma, right? The judge is white. The sheriff is white. The people in positions of power are white and they are part of the conspiracy Whether directly or indirectly, whether, you know, because they truly believe that they are, you know, they are uh, uh, superior to the, you know, the Osage tribe or whether it's just like tacitly because that's kind of how people were grown up is like, well, they're savages and we're the people that are supposed to guide them out or whatever, but are completely complicit to what. Ernest and what Hale are doing and allow it to happen and shrug it off. And it takes fucking J. Edgar Hoover for some goddamn reason. (laughs) They got (laughs) to drop that little nugget in there. Like, yeah, I'm sure J. Edgar Hoover really gave a shit about a tribe of Native Americans. I I really bet he cared about it. But it takes J. Edgar Hoover sending like a team of FBI agents or, or Bureau of Investigation agents, as they were called at the time, to solve these murders which again I keep going back to this I fucking hate about trailers why do you give away the best fucking lines of the movie in the goddamn trailer Jesse Plemons being like I'm down here to see about them murders well who's doing them is a fucking brilliant line of dialogue it is it is fantastic and I'm getting it for free in a trailer and I have to like I always go into these films expecting okay are there is there going to be a better line that they didn't use in the trailer and somehow the line that's in the trailer is 9 times out of 10 the best line in the film. And this continuation, right, this power dynamic struggle that's happening as the Osage tribe is is watching dozens of them die around them, right? Whether it's outright murder Um, but nobody investigates or they can't find who did it or whatever. And they just kind of go, oh, you know, it's a cold case. Whether it is these wasting diseases that they talk about that the women in particular are the ones who are suffering from, you know, nobody cares. And it takes Molly going to DC as part of this like, oh, we're getting all these different tribes people together to like take a photo and, and, you know, pretend that the US government cares. It takes her beseeching the president, and begging for help before anyone actually does anything uh, meaningful. And that's very interesting.
1: Well, it's, I mean, it speaks to a couple things, right? The first is how much the uh, white power structure is built to fight back on these things, right? Um, You have the very direct line that you see when the the FBI does get over and it starts questioning people, where everyone who is in a position of power has kind of been pre-taught to refer to someone else who doesn't have the materials that are necessary, right? Records are kept uh, incredibly limited, uh, and anything that could be uh, in any way uh, threatening to their power structure if investigated by somebody else is just missing and gone, right? Um, that That is a level of organization and, and centralized corruption uh stemming from King and this power he has uh over the course of the town to assert himself as they move towards the, you know creating a, a a county that is a lot more white than it is Osage, despite the fact that it is Osage land um so there's that part of it right there's also the very direct um you know uh, attempts to to beat up and and kill anyone who tries right the tribe gets together and they pick someone that's meant to be a representative early on and they kill that dude because of course they do because the last thing they want is for somebody uh to actually go in and plead to the president for these you know for on their behalf right and, and in the same way you know they they go after the private investigator. That is hired right that's someone who's who's here and, and very clearly trying to help, and they 're getting a little bit too close to the truth, so gotta lure him into his hotel room and then and then smack him on the head um, and and you just eliminate these threats and as long as nobody in a position of power has any interest in investigating these things, you can get away with that right and one of the things that 's so brilliant about the film is is how well it captures just the almost pointlessness of some of the violence right just the sheer brutality of it um you uh, i remember early on right you know it has a scene and it's talking about the osage and look at all this money they have and and whatever else and then it cuts to like okay so here's someone whose death wasn't investigated here's another person and both of them they're like they're in their beds it's like okay you can kind of see How someone, and then here's another death of someone that wasn't investigated, and they're lying in a river. It's like, okay, that kind of seems like something's going on there. And then, you know, it cuts to a scene, and then it comes back, and you see this mother who's, like, taking care of her child, and some white guy just pumps out a window and shoots her clear in the head. No investigation. Because not only do they not care about looking into these murders, But the power structure that they are seeking to build benefits from ensuring that there is no justice on this, right? It is systemic corruption uh, and, and a looking the other way that is so obviously done, right? No one commits suicide by shooting themselves square in the forehead, right? You do it from the side of the head, it's a much more natural position. Not that that's meant to be instructive or whatever. It's just, like, obvious things, right? These are obvious details that anyone who would care would have noticed. But, of course, they do care. They just care about protecting the people that they can then get away with it. Because their long-term goal involves the Osage losing... Everything that, according to these largely white communities, they don't feel like the Osage should have. And the brutality of that is something that Scorsese just does such a brilliant job of capturing by really not holding back in any of those moments, right? Um, the, the one that always gets me is the, uh, the explosion at the house, um, and you see, like Rita's, like the back of her head when they find her, just kind of falls off, and it's it's brutal. There was like a like a visceral reaction within the audience that I was watching this alongside, and like, yeah, it should be. You should be looking at that and being horrified that that level of violence is happening, and being encouraged. That's that's the situation the Osage found themselves in, um, and while. I will say Herbert Hoover's FBI was not quite as effective as, uh, or J. Edgar Hoover, excuse me, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI is not quite as effective as this film makes it out to be. Um, It does say a lot that even the FBI is like, yeah, that, come on, (laughs) that can't track, guys.
0: Yeah, guys, you can do that shit, you just can't be so fucking obvious about it. Like, come on. It is, the, the word brutal, right? The word brutal is such an interesting adjective to use for this film because when i think of brutal right when i think of the word brutal and i think of of films right and movies i think you know the first thing that comes to my head is like tarantino films right there is a visceral brutality to them but it relies so much on outright violence and outright blood and outright gore and you know saw movies right again this sort of gore porn a brutality that's like yeah that is kind of the first thing that comes to mind when you do think of the word br- brutal but then there is when you take a minute and you really think about it right a movie um a movie like all's quiet on the western front is brutal right there is a brutality to that film that doesn't rely on on screen violence right on on very graphic depicted on screen violence. You know, I I'm reminded of the scene where they, they come across the bodies that were, were gassed essentially the, the, you know, the townspeople that were trying to flee and essentially get gassed in the rail station. Right. And this film, while it does have some moments, like you you speak of with Rita and her skull, or um, they had a, a housekeeper or something that was living with them and they like find a finger or part of their hand or something there is a there is brutality to it that is in the scene where they are they are at the trial and they are discussing um how they killed uh the other sister, right? Yeah, Anna, um Anna. Anna. How they killed Anna. Like, there's a nonchalantness to how they kill her, and she's like, You're gonna kill me. And like basically they just hold her upright and just shoot her in the back of the head. Yeah. And there is that, and it's not it's not vicious, right? It's not graphic. It's nothing. But the brutality is the just very casual way uh, that that Kelsey uh, Morrison, the character played by Louis Cancel Me, and Byron just dispose of her. Like she is absolutely nothing. And that moment is so, so revealing about, wait, that is truly how disposable the Osage people are to these white men, yeah. right? It is, we can get you drunk. We can drag you out into the middle of the woods. And while we're not talking about uh, R saying, oh, don't waste a bullet on that. But it's like one bullet, done. Wipe my hands and I'm going to, you know, and as they are, are you know, further interrogating Kelsey, he's like, oh, yeah, I went back there. Like, it's a good place. It's a, it's a private place, right? And you're like, oh, my God, you killed a woman there and
1: you kept bringing women there to sleep with them. That is fucking Wow, and, and Byron came back and slept at Ollie's house that night, right? Like they cut to him coming back to her couch. She gets him a pillow the night that he has murdered his her sister, and it's just like it was nothing. It was nothing to them, and and that is again, it's a lesson that I think people really need to understand. Um, you know, not to get too lost in the current political climate that we're in today, but the not just senselessness of it but the 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 cruelty comes in how effortless it is how easy it is emotionally to distance themselves even when they are ostensibly married to these people right they're they have gone and, and and know them on what should be a very intimate level and it just means nothing It means nothing to them because ultimately the things that they are allied to, the things that they have chosen to put their value in, are just, people are an obstacle to that. Um, And it's something that's deeply uncomfortable. And I I think it's it's a theme that Scorsese comes back to with a lot of his films. But it is one of those things about humanity that I I think a lot of people would much prefer to look the other way on and, and to think like, oh, there's something uniquely evil about the kind of person that could do this. It's like, no, they are the kind of people that would then be your barber the next day. They're the kind of people who would serve you a drink at a bar. They're the kind of people who would uh, offer to drive you home, um, you know, because you're you're coming back from a party and you're not in condition to drive because they've decided you're a person and the people they're willing to eliminate aren't. Um, And it's why it's just so heartbreaking when you get... You know, these these moments from the Osage tribe and in a few different directions, right? The, the council, who is very on-the-nose, absolutely 100% correct that these white people have come into their community and been a plague on them, either by just drawing a lot of resources without giving anything back, or by, you know, straight-up organizing the deaths and loss of... you know these these people and the the money that then flows out of the community never to return but just the sheer callousness you know that like they they can see it and they can't prevent it Uh, and the mom you know telling uh, Molly that she's you know she's not the one she wants to talk to right now because Molly married a white guy and Anna didn't and that makes Anna the good one you know, it's, it's, it's brutal, but it's not wrong, right? Like it's, it it is this idea of like, we have to protect ourselves because nobody else will. Um, and, and, and then you get the people who are willing to move, who are willing to lose everything and go to Colorado Springs and hope that things are a little bit better. There's always a grass is greener on the other side, and maybe this fight's just not one we can win. And that's, Fucking bleak, frankly. It's a it's a an awful decision for anyone to have to make to say, here is this land that means a lot to us, that is our home. Here is this resource that ensures that we should have a profitable and comfortable future, and we need to get away for it from it, or they're going to fucking kill us all. And yeah, that's something we should reckon with as a society and we should recognize that there are people who aren't joking about these things, right? There is rhetoric that is being peddled right now in the world, many different fronts, in which you're like, oh, they can't mean it like that, or oh, that's you know, you're you're taking their implications too far, right? You're being uh ungenerous in, in what you're seeing in them. And it's like, no, I I I just I I've I've read a book. I've seen where this story went. These people have always existed, and maybe we should listen to them and take them seriously because they're not subtle um and certainly subtlety was not on the minds of King Hale or anyone else involved in this story
0: absolutely not, and it it, it is so it is so just about greed, right that these people right you married her like you have access to the money guy. But it's not about that you have access to the money. It's that you need to get your uncle access to the money. You need to get your brother access to the money. You need to get your aunt, your niece. No, they can't have the money. It has to be us. But we have to do it in the right way to consolidate it, right? We have to kill off every member of Molly's family so that all the money goes to her. So then when we finally kill her, all the money goes to your kids well and then since you're the father like you get control of the money because until the kids come of age right the very um you know blatant preferential treatment that the son gets because the son looks white he doesn't look like an osage and that's always like his worry right when you see leo or when you see uh see ernest like playing with his kids or dealing with his kids it's always the son right it's always the son that looks right like him and we talk about how there is this like this this constant of he's always on board, right? Ernest is always on board with the plan. All of these things. It's not until it is truly his family, him, his blood, his daughter dies, where we get this moment where he's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm am i I'm gonna speak to the government. I'm gonna testify. I'm gonna turn against you, Hale, because now it's my daughter." right? Even though, you know, the consequences are not directly related, right? It's not that, like, he killed his daughter, right? Or it's not Hale killed his daughter, theoretically. Like, his his daughter died of, of, like, whooping cough or whatever, right? And he still feels that guilt, right? And that's the guilt that finally causes him to break. But then when he has that moment, as you alluded to earlier, where he, he is asked blatantly by his wife, did you poison me? What did you put in my insulin, right? And he's like, I I didn't do nothing. It was just insulin. And it's like, we have proof you did it, dude. Like, uh, oh, okay. You're still going to lie right to my face when I'm like, I'm willing to forgive you for whatever you've done. And you can come home with me and we can move past all this. He's still got to lie. He can't bring himself to admit that one simple fact, even though time and time again, he has an
1: opportunity to come clean. And for some reason, Molly will... Forgive him well let's let's take a maybe a step back from that because there is no proof she doesn't say, "I will forgive you if you tell me the truth here what What she says is like, "I want to know the truth right for for her peace of mind, she deserves to know what her husband did um and that is the, it's a it's a mild distinction, but I think an important one in this context, right. Um She wants to know the truth because this is the man who she has now seen on a trial admit to basically being responsible for the murder of numerous members of her family right this is This is not like a you know controversial or or whatever like he he has admitted on the stance she has heard the monster that he was, and she just wants to have some closure you know it, it doesn't necessarily mean i'm going to take you back if you tell me the truth. It is saying, I want to know the full truth, and you owe me that, right? That's at least another way you can interpret it. Um, and I think it's an interpretation worth considering, um, especially because the way she asks that question and the way you know, her eyes are just staring back at him, uh, expecting an answer that she knows there's no good one, right? Either he's going to lie, which sucks, or he's going to tell her the truth. Which sucks, but this is the world that she has now found herself in, and the man that she loved, and who is the father of her kids, who you know she'd love to, and and, and she says this in a previous scene, right? Like she'd love to just put all those secrets in a box and go to Colorado skin, Springs and pretend this didn't happen, but you can't go back. Um, but it's it's also worth remembering, right? Like Ernest admitting to his crimes is not guilt not really because if he was ultimately feeling guilty about it there were numerous opportunities in which he could have let that guilt show in which he could have handled things differently he's not guilty he wants he's selfish he he has always wanted wealth and he has always wanted to maintain this family and he's not willing to give that up for his uncle that's what changes it's not that he suddenly is like oh i have seen the error of my ways It is, I realize that the only way I get to see my children again and see my wife again is to do what the U.S. government wants me to do. And that is the only thing that Ernest is ultimately willing to do. Now, you could argue, right? Like, okay, well, that implies that he does love his family, he does care enough to go back and see them. Sure, but what does love mean in this context, right? I I think this film does a very good job of dismantling the idea that love is enough. Or that love is some end-all be-all in which mission accomplished, we did it, we found love, um, that's it, it's it, the the distinction there and is I think a really powerful one and and one that I, I um I think Scorsese and the cast do an expert job of of managing.
0: I, I think that's fair. I, th- I think it. I, I possibly am reading a little bit into it because you are correct. She never says like, oh yeah, uh, uh, other than the scene where she's like, oh, I wish I could take the secrets, put them in a box and, you know, burn it or throw it in the river or like whatever. Like you are correct. She never is like, oh, I forgive you and we can like go on and live our lives. So <laughs> you you are correct with that.
1: I um, too wish there were times in my life where I could forget the things that I learned and go back to the time in which I was naive. And things seemed happier, right that's, that's a, the most human emotion I could possibly think of. Um, and yeah. that's just not how anything works unfortunately. Yeah
0: no, it, it's not it's, it's not how life works and And to me, while, while I agree with that sentiment, like who you are as a person now, right is a collective of all of your experiences and everything that has happened. so to get rid of even one moment is to change your identity entirely. Um, but we're not we're not talking philosophy here. We're talking Killers of the Flower Moon, which does have some very, you know, interesting philosophical discussions and also is a uh to steal your phrase, brutal look at how we as humans treat each other when we are even slightly different. Um but that being said, you bring up the cast, right? And I think there are there are a number of supporting actors uh that that are part of this film. Um, the, the entirety of the Osage tribe and the other, um, you know, the sisters and the mother played by Tonto, Car- uh, Tonto Cardinal. Um, I think some of the other supporting actors, John Lithgow appeared. I was like, hey, what the fuck? What is he doing in here? I forgot for a second that Brendan Fraser was part of the film. And obviously uh, Jesse Plemons kind of being the other like bigger name that was part of the trailer. Um as as the uh the Bureau of Investigation agent Tom White that comes down to help you know try to solve the murders. This really feels like a a troop of four, right? It's Lily Gladstone, it's Leo, it's De Niro, and ultimately the director, Scorsese. Chase, I would like to start with Lily Gladstone. Um because this is a shoe in for a uh, Best Actress nomination, wouldn't
1: you say? Well, and you want to hear the craziest part? Because I-, I learned about this somewhat recently. Originally, uh, the studio was pushing to nominate her for Best Supporting Actress instead, because they thought that would be an easier path towards getting an Academy Award for her performance. And that is not a supporting actress performance. That is, that is a lead actress, if ever I've seen one. And it just, you know, there are very it is very hard to portray a ton of emotion in silence, right? To to be able to capture in the quietest of moments so much of the human condition. Um, whether it be the the scene of the two of them as the rain is falling and, and her, you know, the the moment in which they are equals, right? He is the one who has to listen to. Uh, what she has to say about how you handle the rain and why it matters, and you can't you know like there's there's that moment there, and you know you you see it in you know as she gets sicker and sicker, and her her desperation to have the man who's meant to be the anchor in her world while also the pain that comes from sensing that he is up to something that you know can't be good, right. She doesn't know the totality of his crimes, but she knows that the man that loves her and should be taking care of her is not there, and she sure does seem to get sicker all of the time. Um, and the pain and fear of that, you know? Um, the The fear when the owl shows up, and this idea that, like, you know, she is facing the death that faced her mom, and the just grief that she is able to express whenever she loses one of her family members which is unfortunately a thing that happens far too often over the course of that film um yeah and and the quiet moments of her bonding with her sisters right like you know the film is long and and you know there might be a you know a tendency to say like oh did we need all of those bonding moments with the siblings yes yes you did because you get so much of why we should care and why it's so Affecting and why that loss is so painful, and it is condemning of Ernest that he's not able to see that pain in his wife as a thing that he should be working a lot harder to avoid. Right? Uh, I, I mean, Robert. You know, uh, I, mean, what, I mean, I mean, I imagine you're on the same page on on her, right? Um, I I am beyond impressed
0: uh, by what she was able to accomplish um with with the little dialogue that she had and the dialogue that she does has have you know moves mountains right she is a she is a character of very little words you know if this was going to be a a a male performance this would be perfect for tom hardy right (laughs) the less you talk the better uh, which has nothing to say about about Lily's, you know, acting performances. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm pulling up the IMDb page just real quick to be like, have I actually watched anything else that she's in? And I I don't think so. I do think this is my my first interaction with her as an actress, and I am just I am absolutely stunned and blown away, uh, as you said, with the amount of emotion she is able to convey both in a positive way with the sly little smile she has, particularly, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the scene with her sisters and they're sitting outside and she's calling uh, Ernest the coyote and they're, you know, being kind of funny and sly with each other and they keep kind of looking at him and, you know, he's not really paying attention until he finally does um, the, the scene where they are in her house and it is raining. And, you know, she was, she was like all joyful and like having fun and like, ooh, yeah, let's have some whiskey, like everything. And then, the rain comes and now she's reminded of, you know, her traditions and what she needs to do and keeping Ernest quiet um, to what is, you know, arguably the the most gruesome, right, of her pain is when she loses her last sister in the bombing and she is in the basement with her, you know, with the rest of her family. And that scream that she, you know, emits of knowing that she lost her last family member is heart wrenching mm-hmm. um, and and even like the the sort of passive nature she has at their daughter's funeral is also that is that is the look of someone who has seen so much goddamn grief and literally has no tears left in them um you know even for their child is she is what makes this movie brutal, her performance is what truly makes. Even, again, the most blasé, you know, murder of of Anna in the middle of the woods, one bullet when she's like, you're about to kill me, like, makes that feel so much more brutal is because of what you know Molly is going to go through and what happens when they uncover the body and they, like, have to ask her, hey, can you look at it and identify your body or identify your sister's body? Again, with this just, like, blasé attitude of, like, yep, another one's dead. Like, of course they're dead. Who cares? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I, the, the fact you are saying that they tried to make it a supporting actress nod uh, is going to be something we are going to discuss in a moment with someone else, but is also a fucking slap to the face uh, of everything that she was able to do with this film. Um, so before I get any angrier about that, let's move on to De Niro. Because de Niro's King Hale is
1: interesting and boring at the same time interesting i yeah, I mean he's certainly like you you can see the archetype that he's fitting into right away right he he is uh very much the guy who who loves power, loves to be seen as powerful and you know have these these people all kind of bend to his his will in these moments that matter. Um, You know, that part, I think, is a very, like, tale-as-old-as-time moment, right? Um, There there is a, you know, nuance to it, I think, the the way that he plays that kind of sanctimonious character um, and is able to assert himself in a way that is so, you know, deviously clever, right? Like when they're at the council meeting and... He realizes that there's now this investigation coming in, and there's a lot of money being offered for information and he's like, "I'm going to offer up my own one thousand, so just make sure you come to me because I'm a friend of the Osage tribe um there There's an institutional understanding that he is built in a power structure that he that you need a charismatic man to lead um and he always is able to play this guy who feels like he's one step ahead. Um, but who also is incapable, due to the position that he has found himself in, of recognizing when he's in over his head, when he's when he's invested too much into a plan like the insurance fraud plan that he has with the friend of his, quote unquote, that he um, frames to ha- as having committed suicide. Um, I-, I do think it does everything that the role needs to. He he is a very like you know he 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 handles that like manipulative charismatic element very well um and and his ability to ingratiate himself to the tribe and and speak the language in a way that makes them feel like he is you know welcoming and a a positive force is what makes you know the the moments right like when when Minnie. Is saying like, oh, you know, Ernest is, you know, clearly just in love with you because he doesn't have the money. He has uh, King, H- you know, he has Hale's money. Um, or the the moments in which, you know, uh, Molly is asking like, are you ever afraid of him? Like, you you get these these moments of clarity in which the veil is turned back, but there's just enough there that he's able to keep it going for way way longer than it should. And I do think De Niro handles that very well. I, I, I do think that he does what the role needs from him in that regard. King Hale's
0: character is, is very interesting to me when it comes to the relationship between him and Ernest and him with the tribe as a whole right as you said he learned the language he like speaks the language he is ingratiated and ingrained himself into this tribe as a friend of the osage tribe even at the end you know when they're talking about you know him being in jail because hey guess what they do go to jail like we get a um an ending and he's writing this letter and still referring to himself as a friend of the osage tribe and like when he dies he still goes back there to live you know before he dies when he gets out of prison you know all these things all these things are like very interesting, right? There there is like the dynamic here that he does view himself as untouchable because he's he's got the ins with them, right? And by being on the inside with them, he sees their wealth and he can't help but want to have it. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating, right? As I you know mentioned earlier, the manipulation of Ernest into calling him king and being like, oh yeah, that's what you call, that's what you call me, right? Like I don't think any of the Osage call him king. I think it's really mm. a lot of, like, the white people in power, you know, the, the sheriff, the judge, like, all of these other things. And it is all very, very telling to me, right, the sort of, like, where you see him operating are in these pretty traditional, like, white male buildings of power, right? You have an elk Lodge. You have a, you have a, a fucking Masonic Temple where he takes Ernest to be punished for one of his transgressions, where they fucking paddle him like he's a schoolboy. Well, he doesn't do it. He gets Byron to do it, which, again, this is one of those, he keeps his hands off of everything. Like, he gives the order indirectly, but his hands are almost never bloodied uh, throughout the entire film. Or, like, the pool hall where he's sitting when, you know, Jesse Plemons' character, Tom White, comes to, you know, talk to him. He's sitting there getting a shave and, you know— it's his kingdom, right? It's his throne that he's sitting in, essentially. Everyone probably knows that if they want to talk, to talk to William Hale, they just have to go to the pool hall at the right time when he's getting his weekly shave and haircut, right? Um, the problem is that this is an Italian accent away from him being a mob boss, which I've seen De Niro play half a dozen times in a Scorsese film. And that's where I say it's boring. I've basically seen this character from De Niro before, which is okay. Like, it's not a bad character, but it just, it reminds me of other things, right? It harkens me to Goodfellas. It harkens me to The Departed, right? What's the difference in his role here and in The Departed? Well, in The Departed, he's actually willing to, like, shoot somebody, right? He is a little bit more uh, violent, du- you know, directly violent and a bit more on the nose about what he's actually asking for where here he's trying to pretend to be this like, Oh yeah, I'm this, this, I'm this, this rancher. I'm just this farm guy. Uh, But again, if you gave him a fucking Italian accent, I, I can't differentiate this character from
1: the other roles that he's played counter argument. What does that tell us about the kind of people who take over power in situations like this right the truth is that there are commonalities of the kind of person that wants to live the kind of life that king hale does like yeah you're right they're like he acts like a mob boss because he's a mob boss the mob is just white society in a what is a white minority county that is turning into a white majority one through the efforts of taking out those who uh are in his way, like they're, they're it, it, You know, you you can argue, right? That Scorsese has hit the same theme quite a few times, and you know what films you end up loving of his the most are the ones that you think hit that theme the best. But I don't think it's an accident that you could watch that and say, like, yeah, he's an Italian accent away from a mob boss. Yeah, yeah, he is for sure. Um, and if he was, you know, the the old, you know, you know, a younger version of him and a, a New Yorker type trying to clean out the, the people that he thinks are, are lesser than him, it would be Taxi Driver, right? Like that's, that's, that's people. That is the mentality of what leads people to violence and the idea is that it is so pervasive and and so regular that these kinds of people that are wired this specific way pop up everywhere. Now, does that mean it's the most challenging role De Niro has ever played? No. I think that's a fair criticism. But I also think that like what you're stumbling on is not a flaw, or at least not something that Scorsese would find as a flaw. I think he would say, "Yeah, no shit, man." Um, for better and for worse, right? Um, the, that that comparison's not an accident. Well, and and like that's what makes it a Scorsese film,
0: right? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think this is a flaw, right? Like I I say it. It is a negative, right? Because I go, well, what does this film do that's interesting, right? And I'm now starting to nitpick at things. And I'm starting to go, what doesn't make this film interesting, right? What makes it interesting is this narrative and this story that I have never heard. Because this is not part of the United States educational system. Because we don't actually like to look at the really bad things that we do to the people that live within our borders critically. We like to try and pretend that, like, you know... Slaves learned valuable skills while they were in slavery, and they might have been much happier. As some school districts in this country want to try and teach our kids to believe, right? This isn't a story we heard in school. And to go like, okay, well, like Scorsese, like, and we'll go to Scorsese first, right? We'll, we'll go to Scorsese next because I do think the criticism I have of De Niro is a very similar criticism that I that I can have with Scorsese is like you are telling. A very similar kind of story that you have done in the past, but I think in this instance you have chosen a very, very interesting and unknown and un-kind-of-discovered or underexposed setting and people to discuss this specific topic about, right? Right. You know, it's a lot more easy for me to consume a film like Goodfellas where it's a bunch of Italian mobsters, like, all ganging up on each other. And, like, the brutality and the violence in it is like, yeah, because it's fucking mob shit. And, like, that's enjoyable to watch, right? That's fun to watch. That's like, you, you know, Ray Liotta's character getting his comeuppance at the end of Goodfellas. Like, yeah, you you got what you deserved, asshole. Or Leo and Wolf of Wall Street, right? And in this film, because it is not fun, right? This subject is not fun. It is uncomfortable. That's what makes it, going back to that objective again, brutal. But I don't think it's groundbreaking because of anything Scorsese did or De Niro did. I think it's groundbreaking because of the story that it is telling and the kind of honesty that they are keeping to that story and they are not trying to overly embellish things to make it entertaining right this film feels much more in line with something that i would watch on the history channel right and it being this long three-hour kind of mockumentary documentary style thing where you can't just put professors on screen to talk about it you are actually going to act out the action because it is a movie and you do want there to be some level of entertainment um but it feels very much in scorsese's wheelhouse And maybe maybe because of the subject matter and because Scorsese has spent the better part of 30, 40 years, you know, refining his craft, we have Scorsese, who is a director... Uh, you know, with lots of experience that has learned what he is very good at, has learned what he's very bad at, focuses on his strengths, hides his flaws. You know, this is a gorgeous film to watch when it comes to the the sweeping landscapes. It is very tightly shot. There doesn't seem to be any wasted space. As we've said much earlier, three and a half hours. I don't really know what exactly you could leave on the cutting room floor to get it down to three or even under three hours. You know, it is it is so mechanically well done and the subject matter and the plot are so interesting and so different and there's so much nuance to it. But when you pull all of the rest of that away, this is a story Scorsese is told three, four, five times. And perhaps, you know, like you said, maybe I am being just like overly critical and kind of hanging on that fact because there isn't a whole lot else that I can kind of grip at to try and be overly critical of. And Scorsese would hit me in the back of the head and go, yeah, that's the point nuts. But when my partner, who watches Goodfellas once a year for Christmas, because that's her favorite film of all time, can come out of the theater and go, that scene, that scene, and I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but three or four scenes, all match scenes that are in Goodfellas, including the paddling scene, looks like the exact same garage that Joe Pesci's character walks through when he gets whacked in Goodfellas? Like, ah, maybe maybe a little bit more subtlety and not relying on the bag of tricks that you've crafted over the past 30 years, you know, maybe you could add something new from the director's toolkit besides just a very interesting untapped story.
1: You know, it's an interesting point. Um, I, I do think ultimately where I come down on it, right, is like, I mean, there's a reason I haven't seen The Irishman. And it's because I'm sure it hits a lot of similar themes, and I've heard it does so relatively well, um, but I, I have not heard, like, oh yeah, it's doing something so different, so interesting, so unique, that you have to go see it, right? Um, but, you know, Scorsese's talked about this, right, um, in in interviews. You know, he is, at this point in his life, he is an 81-year-old man. He is 81 years old. Um, and so... He is, at like, in his career, he is trying to tell all of the stories that he thinks matter. He straight up said, like, the biggest thing he struggles with now uh, is this idea that, like, he knows that he's going to die. And he knows that there are only so many movies he's going to be able to make. And there is no way he's going to be able to tell all the stories he wants to tell, to make all the movies he wants to make, to capture all of the things that he is interested in capturing and that is a damn tragedy. Um and I think people's discomfort with death and aging and how legacy is handled is why the quotes that keep getting circulated on social media are about fucking Marvel shit like that matters, right? Like that's the thing that Scorsese should be like that's that's not what what we should be paying attention to with this man. Um I really wish um we were better about that, but like I mean, ultimately, you know, this is, he's at a point in his life where it's like, look, I have stories I really want to tell. And Killers of the Flower Moon is one that I believe deserves to be told, and I'd agree with him on that. I, I'm very glad he took the time to tell this story. And yeah, he did it in his Scorsese way, that's the guy that he is. Um, but I, I I don't think that's a bad thing to have um scorsese is an artiste in the classic sense he has a very distinct point of view that he has crafted over decades and when it's used expertly then it creates a film that i think is worth everyone's time and energy and this is very much that to me um if it's you know we'll we'll see what the next one is but I, i i guess i see that as less of a a critical flaw than you did
0: that is that is entirely fair. That is entirely fair. But I have to paint all of that, right? I have to paint that level of criticism because I have to now come to the enormous blind spot that Scorsese had for this film. Leonardo DiCaprio should not have been casted in this role. I don't think he should have been in this film because I think ultimately he is a distraction for the rest of the story, Right? Uh, reading some reviews and whatnot, um, you know, discussing who is the main character of this film and like, well, it should be Lily Gladstone's Molly Burkhart, right? It absolutely should be completely centered around her because it is her family that is being killed, right? It is her tribe that is being eradicated because these greedy white people want their fucking oil money. And instead, the film, the lens, the plot is focused around Leonardo DiCaprio doing his best John Cryer, Alan Harper impersonation from Two and a Half Men. Of this, oh, I'm so bumbling, I don't know what I'm doing, the downturned face. Everything about this performance from Leo is distracting and reminds me of other characters that he has played, but not the character he's supposed to be playing in this film. I have a l- really hard time separating Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, away from this character, And every time he shows up on screen, it's just him with a sad face. It's just him with a downturned face and, and trying to do this like idiot accent to try and convince us like I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio who's dating 19 and 21-year- old women and, and you know, is, is lounging by my pool or anything. There is nothing believable to me about his performance as this character, right? I don't feel like I, I, I really, really, really wish someone else had been casted in this role because I really wonder how much more some of those scenes would have stood out. Um, in particular, the scene where um the the doctors are at their house and Molly like sends them out of the room because she doesn't want them administering the drug. She wants Ernest to get it right from the the train and bring it to her and be the one to administer and do all these things. And like, I see his character from Wolf of Wall Street yelling. I don't see Ernest Burkhart yelling. And to me, that is ultimately when we have our score is going to be a big reason why I'm going to give this movie the score that I give it.
1: It's a very interesting point. I, I do think... The film does waffle a little bit on the idea of how aware Ernest is of everything he's doing, right there There's a an offhanded comment made uh, about uh, his condition when he's getting ready to uh, talk on you know to to um, to provide testimony on behalf of the state, right um, where you know they they kind of play into this idea of like, oh, he's just mentally not all the way there. Uh, and thus he is more easily manipulated right um how much of that is true, and how much of that is him playing into the more simple mindset in order to um justify his own beliefs right like is he uh is he actually just you know uh does he actually have some some disabilities that make him um more prone to manipulation, or is he someone who uh, knows that playing dumb can take him a long way. I I think the film was a little bit open-ended. I, I'm not going to pretend to be like a Leonardo DiCaprio fan. Um, the more I learn about the guy, the less I enjoy him as a person. Um, but I have to admit that I, I didn't have the same problems with his character that you did. Um, I I think he... The the things he does very well um, are the, you know, he, he does love uh, his wife despite everything that he is doing outside of that relationship, right? Um, he is able to walk a tough balance between being the heartless, cold person that he is when it comes to everything around her and the caring, considerate husband that he is when she says, I need you right now, and he goes, I'm right here, I'm right here, and just holds her there. And I, I that moment did land for me. Um, does it mean that every moment lands for me? No. But I I also, like, you know, when he is at panicked, right, and he's going to the parade and he's freaking out and Robert De Niro's trying to get him to calm down, like, he does play a guy who is in over his head, who is able to sense that something is wrong, but does not have the wherewithal or the confidence or whatever X-Factor is missing to call it out for what it is and actually go and protect himself. Um, and I, I I don't think it is easy to play the role that he did. I don't think, like, I, you know, I wouldn't support him for, like, a best actor or not. I, I think... You know, maybe there are some other people who could have done the role a little bit better. I, I, you know, we'll never know what that world looks like. But I am not ready to condemn his performance because I do think that the things that mattered most about his character in terms of the role he plays in the narrative and how he is able to impact and engage with the world, I think he does those parts well, even if the other bits can be frustrating. He to me is
0: what a brilliant person pretending to act like a Lenny is, and I find it distracting. And I, and I will say, the scene with the parade that you're you're pointing out, like that scene in particular. I'll give him high marks for. He does play a very good, like, oh, shit, I'm in over my head. Like, fuck, what do I do? What do I do? And then gets, like, slapped in the face type thing, right? Like, he does play that very well. But I I don't buy the rest of it. I would say that this is a... He, in particular, stood out to me because I couldn't buy him as Ernest Burkhart Every time he was on screen... I was watching Leonardo DiCaprio play a role that I don't think he is good at, right? I don't think was is in his wheelhouse. Are you if you ask me, well, who would you put there instead, Walter? I don't fucking know. I'm not a casting director. I would say maybe pick someone with a little bit less, you know, credits on his resume. Pick a little bit more of an unknown actor so that I'm not instead seeing the guy who's in The Wolf of Wall Street, the guy who's in Titanic, the guy who's in The Departed, the guy who, like the guy who's in One Night in Hollywood. Like all of these things, right? Maybe pick somebody else with a little bit less unrecognizable. And I, I fucking swear to God, that downturned face that he has the entire time, he looks like a fucking muppet. <laughs> I I just it was distracting. It was distracting. And, and it's fine if you don't agree with that, right? It's fine if you go like, yeah, his performance is neither here nor there. Like, he's going to get nominated for a Best Actor nomination because that's what's going to fucking happen with this film, right? He's going to get one. De Niro's going to get a supporting. Gladstone's going to get a Best Actress. Scorsese's going to get a Best Director nod. They'll probably give it to him unless something else like, that we missed that was really fucking good this year just because they know it's probably like the last one he's ever going to get. And like, it's going to get a Best Picture nom. Do I know if it wins? I don't know. Maybe. I could see it. I could see them picking this. This kind of has the right hallmarks of, like, what the Academy would choose for a best picture. But, man, Leo, Leo fucking, ugh. He's a wart on the face of this beautiful film, unfortunately, for me. Uh, Chase, there is one other... Uh, topic of controversy because i do know that like the leo casting has been a little bit people have been somewhat critical of it especially sort of the like okay well who's the main character who's the lead in this film um but the ending the ending to this of kind of giving the summary of everything that has happened in a very like 50s 40s kind of radio show with the slide whistles and and the acting on stage found out jack white from the black from the white stripes was in it like what the hell um how how did that make you feel
1: um honestly i loved it and i know that there are people who have pointed out some 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 issues they have with it and I, i don't think those people are are wrong by any stretch but I do think that if you look at the themes that they're trying to capture right um it it makes sense that this is where the the film ends up right because it is ultimately a story about how violence is commodified for commercial ends right how how these power structures Are manipulated and utilized uh, by those who are corrupt, by those who uh, seek to take advantage, um, and you know and are ultimately not given the the care that they should, right? Like if you think about like the way that they do these video packages and then they'll cut to someone just being straight-up shot in broad daylight And everyone just moves on. I think what they capture at the end of the film by having that radio segment is like a pitch-perfect understanding of everything that is wrong about how a lot of people approach stories like this, right? Um, You know, you can point to something like My Favorite Murder, which I I know has gotten a lot of criticism recently and, and, you know, a lot of these, like, serial killer podcasts or whatever have come under fire. And if you looked at that scene at the end and said, man, they really are capturing, like, like they they really are taking this story that's so passionate and meaningful and they're ending it like that. Then I I think that that's the whole point. I think that's ultimately what is trying to be captured there is this idea that what is the, the culmination of the Osage suffering, right? What is the legacy of all the pain and the hurt? Well, it's the two guys who are the most responsible for it will eventually get out on good behavior, despite the Osage begging the U.S. government not to. The Osage continue to die out, slowly but surely, and the U.S. government does nothing to rectify what is you know to to be fair to them impossible to rectify right there's no you, you can't there's no do good on uh, over 100 people are dead um but it's just a story now and it's a story that is being used to engage and enrapture people who want to feel better about having paid attention to it right as if the awareness of this thing and acknowledging this thing makes the societal complicity that is inherent in this kind of issue okay, and it's not, and it's it, and the callousness of that is something you should feel. Um, I, I, I think I think that part of it is captured very very well, um, but I also understand why someone might look at that and go like you know, well, we're telling the story now and maybe people deserve a better version of that. Like we we can make that choice in the here and now. But I I don't know. I I thought thematically it captured everything the film was trying to be really, really well.
0: It's okay. I'll I'll give you the other side of things. I thought it was gross. I thought it risked diminishing everything else that the film had done. Uh, It should have been black cue cards with no sound. And then should have had the you know the tribal dancing image with them them doing the singing uh at the end. I think the only redeeming part of that final sequence was Scorsese reading the obituary um but I found the rest of it disgusting. I thought it was it was yeah, I thought it was disgusting, and I thought it completely ruined what the ending of the film should have been, which is this very somber it happened all these people died the people that did it basically kind of got away with it other than losing you know some years of their life in federal prison they still got out they still got to live through the end of their lives and die um and i don't like the mockery essentially, that is being made of that fact. Even if that is the point, even if that is what they are going for, and Scorsese hits me upside the back of the head and goes, yeah, numbnuts, that is what I was going for, um, I didn't like it.
1: Well, I do think we have to acknowledge, though, right, that broadcast that he's referring to was a real broadcast that happened. He didn't make it up for the film. It wasn't a new thing that he thought was just a point that he could score here for, like, a cheap whatever. That's the thing that happened. That radio show, as it was presented, was a real thing that occurred in the aftermath of these events. And I think we should reckon with that too, right? Like, there is a grossness to that that I think shying away from would have also been a mistake, right? I, I I don't disagree with the fact that it's gross. I, in fact, agree completely that it's gross. But he didn't come up with that in whole cloth. He didn't decide, hey, this is the kind of thing that people do. He captured the thing that they did. And I do think that that distinction matters, even if ultimately it doesn't change that you wish the ending was different. But I that, don't know. That is we're, fair. We're, yeah. It, we're that, a,
0: that's fun. fair. If that's actually what happened, fine. Didn't know that. Still don't think it needs
1: to be at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah just, I just, just don't. We 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 live in a world in which there are a lot of podcasts that are still doing that all the time. All the time. It's a whole genre. And I even like a couple of them. I love Behind the Bastards. And what is Behind the Bastards if not telling the stories of a whole bunch of people doing really shitty things um that often end that same way. Um and that are Plugged as entertainment. And as long as that continues to be a part of our culture, we should talk about it. Maybe the very end of the film wasn't the right time to talk about it. Maybe they could have had something else after that, but it's a thing. It's a thing, and pretending that it wasn't, I think, would be a different disservice. Um, But, yeah, I mean, to to, to each their own on that. I, I don't think there's a... I I don't think people are wrong for what is ultimately a very uh, reasonable emotional response, which is that, like, that's not the way their story should be told. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I wish that that wasn't a thing that happened. I wish that wasn't the thing that happens every single fucking time that people get genocided. We should probably do something about that as a society. I don't know, man. Seems like a problem. I, I think I can unequivocally
0: say uh, that with the Final Cut uh, podcast lawyer's permission, uh, genocide is bad.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Genocide
0: is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe I need a lawyer to approve that. Uh, but apparently, in today's day and age, sometimes saying genocide is bad, you're not allowed to say it and you lose your job. I don't yeah. fucking know.
1: Appreciate it, Nick, too, uh, for uh, researching that while we were doing the show. It was really... You know, we, we took some time because there's a lot of counterexamples, apparently, where that is that is a, a thing that people hate when you say it. But uh, yeah, I'm glad we could take such a bold stance here today. That, hey, you know, Chase,
0: that's what he's here for. Uh, but also and again, like this also feels a little weird coming out of this, uh, but it's kind of it's kind of how we end our podcast. And man, this does feel
1: a little a little gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chase, your final score on Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm gonna give it a 10 um and it's obviously like it's one of those things that always feels very silly right because uh it's like well do i like it more or less than barbie a film i gave another 10 to i it's this is why film scores are always inherently a bit silly but you know the things that mattered they nail right uh lily gladstone's performance alone is worth the cost of admission the fact that Martin Scorsese could have me caring and invested for over three hours is impressive. Uh, the, the number of turns that it takes and the ways in which it captures the totality of the callousness that, that, uh, that this shows. And, you know, say what you will about the radio segment towards the end. But the last shot of the film is the Osage dancing together. The flowers are still blooming. They're still dancing. And they deserve to be remembered for that more than anything. um, Because they deserved way, way better than the hand that they got. I'll give it a 10. Watch it. Go see it. It's worth your time.
0: Uh, I, I don't have a lot more to say that hasn't already been covered in this hour and a half long podcast. Uh, so I'll be pretty succinct. Uh, I give it a seven and a half out of 10. Um, and if you want to watch a movie to be entertained, this is not the film for you. Um, if you want to watch a movie that is going to make you think, um, and is going to teach you about something that happened in our country's history that I guarantee 99% of school textbooks, uh, you know, American history textbooks in this country will not have uh, unless you take a very particular, you know, type of elective, college elective course, um, then this is a film for you. Um, But I cannot get past what I think is a terrible acting performance by Leonardo DiCaprio. And the final scene uh, left a very sour taste in my mouth um, that wasn't a like, man, I can't believe that, that happened to those people. It was more of a like, wow, can't believe they ended the film that way. Uh, Seven and a half out of 10. That being said, um, if you would like to discuss this film uh, with us, uh, Chase, where can the good folks at home find you on the internet?
1: Uh, You can find me at Chase Wassener on Twitter or at uh, chasewassener.bsky.social on Blue Sky, a place that I definitely remember to post every now and then. For sure, for sure, for sure. Um, And, of course, you should come back uh, on the weeks that we're not doing this movie pod uh, so we can talk about uh, games on our our show Steam Cleaners, uh, where we talk about games that we've never played before uh, and and get to share that with uh, each other and with you lovely folks. Um, So definitely come back for that next week.
0: Absolutely. Um, as always, you guys can follow me at C80s underscore LOL uh, and on blue sky uh, at c dot dot social. One day I'll post on there. I don't know when, but, but one day it'll happen. It'll probably be when Elon tries to charge me to use X or Twitter or whatever the fuck it's called, mm-hmm. uh, man. But uh, with that being said, uh, Chase and I need to go behind the curtain here and figure out what movie we're going to watch next Um, because there's quite a few movies that are coming out between now and the end of the year. We're not going to get to all of them. And I want to make sure that we get to the movies that we actually want to watch and not
1: the Marvels. And until then, (laughs) goodbye, Internet.